When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm currently about a thousand miles west-southwest of Cape Town. We're making our way back. We've got 30 knots of wind blowing on our port side at the moment. ship is rocking quite violently from one side to the other. There's a lot of uh, people confined to their cabins at the moment with a bit of seasickness. But we're coming home. We're coming home from Endurance 22. Spirits are high. We found Endurance. The team are thrilled. And people all over the world have been getting in touch, enjoying the pictures and video shot on the seabed. It's been such an exciting project to be part of. This is the final episode. This is the last time you're going to hear me talking about Endurance 22 for the moment. No more plans to do so. So we just wanted to wrap up a few things. I wanted to answer some of your questions, but I also wanted to hear from the family, some of the family, some of the descendants. Now, interestingly, there are two direct descendants, two children left of someone on that voyage, John and Viv James. They're the sons of Reginald James. He was a scientist. He was a young physicist taken aboard by Shackleton. They remember their dad talking about the expedition, as you'll hear. It's fascinating stuff. I actually talked to them on a Zoom from the ship as we were searching. So it's before we knew we'd found the ship. And I wanted to fill them in on the story, and I recorded that conversation, which I'm now going to broadcast out to all of you. Reginald James was on the endurance, obviously. He was frozen, he lived on the ice, and then he made it to Elephant Island, where he stayed. He was not one of those in the small boat, James Caird, that went to South Georgia. He waited on Elephant and was rescued and then went on to have a very distinguished career. He ended up in South Africa as a senior figure in the university there in Cape Town. Talking to his kids, who are now both gentlemen of quite advanced years, was a great way of reminding myself this story is still very fresh, very important, very real to many people around the world today. 100 years isn't that long. Just over a century, 105, six, seven years, not that long. Don't forget, everyone, you can go and watch our documentary, our most watched documentary ever on History Hit TV. is all about the endurance, all about Shackton, and all about Huntford. Head over to History Hit TV. The link is in the description of this podcast. So you can go and check that out. Just give that a little tap, and it will take you through to the History Hit TV page. So um, make sure you go and watch that documentary. But in the meantime, folks, and answer some of your questions and talk to John and Viv. Enjoy. All right, we asked for questions on Instagram and Twitter and various places, and lots of people got back with lots of questions. So here we go. Here's a few that the team have sent me. I haven't seen these questions before, so it's going to come as a surprise. Sarah Jenny, 321. Do you feel a haunting parallel with the backdrop of war during Shackleton and his crew's expedition and the outbreak of war in Ukraine? 
whilst we were in search of the endurance? Well, the answer to that, Sarah, is yes. I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast. It's been very disturbing, very, very sad indeed. Very sad for lots of reasons. One is, like all of you, you all love history, you're all aware of history. I think many of us thought naively, wrongly, thought we no longer lived in a world of armies massing on frontiers, of demands being given, of kind of deadlines, you know, like sort of Austria-Hungary trying to bully Serbia in the summer of 1914. That was a world that I thought I studied and read about in history books. It was a world that when it did rear its head in my lifetime, like Saddam Hussein in the early 90s in Kuwait, it was roundly condemned and and often reversed by the international community. Of course, wars have gone on in my lifetime, but interstate wars where states seek to bite off and annex, formally annex bits of territory in that very recognisably early modern or, well, for the whole of history, people have done that in that kind of way. We thought we'd got away from that. And that's what's so depressing and, and terrifying about this particular war. That added, of course, to the fact there's a, a nuclear power involved, a, a nuclear alliance lining up behind Ukraine on the other side with the potential for absolute devastation, an existential threat to life on Earth. Really, really depressing stuff. Why do old, out-of-touch men roll the iron dice? Why did the Kaiser, Hitler, the Austrians, the Russians in 1914, why, why do we keep doing this? We've done lots of podcasts where we attempt to get into that question and answer them. Most recently, with I remember with Brian Class, we talked about psychopaths becoming leaders and how we will never be safe, we will never be free until we work out a way of freeing ourselves from these lunatics who rule over us, who hold our lives and our fates in the palm of their hands. It's very, very disturbing. In a narrow sense, yeah, I mean, it was very weird. We planned this operation and left during a time of increased international tension. We knew that Russia was massing on the frontier of Ukraine. It was very obvious to Shackleton that war was in the air. He narrowly avoided, in fact, being in Germany for the outbreak of war, which would have been devastating for him. He would have ended up interned for the course of the war. And we would not, I think, have heard the name Shackleton today. He narrowly avoided that. It was clear that Europe was lurching towards war. And he did visit Buckingham Palace and meet the King Emperor on the day that Britain declared war on Germany in early August 1914. So... Their preparations were very tied up with war, as you'll have heard if you listen to our documentary on Shackleton. We arrived in the Antarctic and sure enough, Russia invaded Ukraine. It was very, very difficult being here. It was very difficult allowing ourselves to enjoy what we were experiencing, given the horrors and the sadness and the tension that we could feel coming through all of our electronic interactions with home. I hated being away as a dad, as a husband, as a family member. My not that I could have done anything to help anyone, but I hated being away, hated being away from them at that time. And so it was very difficult for everyone on the expedition. We are an international crew. We have a Russian scientist on board. We have Americans, Germans, uh, all sorts of different nationalities. And we continued working and, and hoping that in some very small way, we could be a little bit of an example of what humans can do when they work together and focus on science and making the world a better place, a safer place rather than plunging the world into violence and turning people against each other. But yeah, the parallels were very pronounced and very disturbing. Violet Mond, was there anything that, regardless of how often you saw it, kept being fascinating? Yes, I think the ice breaking is absolutely fascinating. We were all entranced. We stood on the bows. It was warm enough. It wasn't absolutely freezing a great blizzard, but we stood on the bows as long as we could and just watched as this ship carved through a solid surface. When you grow up on boats and ships, it's not how it's supposed to happen. It meant to go through liquid. And we would smash through this ice like a thick meringue coating. 
and it would shatter and get thrown aside and the penguins and seals on it would run out the way and it was endlessly fascinating. Chris Taft, 16. Would you do it again and go back? Can you see why Shaq and others became hooked? Chris, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I would go back. You can see why people are hooked. Antarctica is the last great wilderness on planet Earth. There are parts of Antarctica that are not claimed by any nation. It's the last piece of land on Earth not claimed by a nation state. The Antarctic Treaty thankfully governs the rest of it and means that those claims are not pursued aggressively elsewhere. And so it is a place given over to science and a little bit of tourism, but it's a place given over to international scientists working together, trying to gain a better understanding of this planet we're on and and resolve some of the great problems that face us. So, yeah, it is an extraordinary place. When we were on out there in the Weddell Sea, the closest human beings were probably the people on the International Space Station as they passed overhead. So, And, of course, there's so much more to explore. We only saw tiny, tiny pockets. So I can see why people became hooked. So much to explore, so much untouched nature. It seems like less fear of humans than you would get in animals elsewhere in the world because they haven't been hassled and harassed and killed and chased and hunted by humans. So penguins and seals that you come up close whales that come up to take a look at you with their beady eye, I can definitely see why people became obsessed with the ice. Jay Askham, I wondered if there's any sign of the AUV lost in 2019, the drone lost in 2019, how close the first expedition came to finding drones. That is an excellent question. Funny enough, the team did tell me that there is an sort of AUV-sized target of interest, point of interest, towards the north of the search box. It could be a rock, it could be a fold in the ground, but it did look like it could be the AUV lost in 2019. They've looked at where they searched in 2019, on that first mission that was given to the AUV, where it was actually lost on its first mission. The place the endurance was was just outside that first mission. So the drone didn't find it in 2019, but it may easily have found it had it been recovered and there been a second mission launched. Ben Fulsham. How did you occupy yourself when you weren't filming your podcasting? Well, I spent a lot of time filming and podcasting, dude, but I did do a lot of reading. I reread all the sort of South and Chatham books. Worsley's brilliant book on the open boat journey. It's actually almost my favorite book produced by anyone on the expedition. I read War and Peace. I did get there. A lot of you said I wouldn't. A lot of you were sending me a bit of banter on Twitter, sending I would not read War and Peace, but I did. And I tell you, that was even more strange. So I was in the Antarctic, like Shackleton, whilst war broke out in Europe, Russia invading Ukraine, whilst reading War and Peace, which is all about the Russians at war and a bit at peace. So I was in the zone, man. It was a weird time. I also read Middlemarch, which I found heavy going, actually, George Eliot, but I did that. And then I reread a couple of Patrick O'Briens because you can't go wrong with them. And the other thing I did was just sit around with the wonderful people, talking nonsense, looking at stars, gazing out, looking at the icebreaking, as I mentioned. So there's a lot of fun social times as well. I tried to stay away from screens, didn't watch much in the way of TV or, or movies, just tried to enjoy the people around me. Endurance South, that's a good name. How much has this expedition and everything you've seen and experienced changed your life? Well, Endurance South, that's heavy. I'm not sure this is the answer you're looking for, but I don't think it's changed my life a huge amount. I was always someone who loved exploring. I was someone who loved spending time away, isolated, thinking, reading, writing, I'm not someone who's obsessed with creature comforts. I don't mind, you know, sleeping. I mean, it's obviously very comfortable on the boat. Um, so I don't know, sadly, if it has changed my life that much, but it's reaffirmed what I know that I love in life, which is seeing other parts of the world, working with wonderful teams, being with interesting, stimulating people who I learn things from and, and who stretch me. I love travelling. I love sailing of the ocean. I love seeing storm-lashed waves. 
So it's made me even more determined than before to sort of live a life where I'm lucky enough, privileged enough to have those experiences. Emma Hoppy, name one particular enduring memory or achievement from this journey. Well, I think, Emma, I probably have to say when I snuck down into the control centre for the drone that night, I think it may have been Sunday, the 6th of March, maybe, when they took the 4K camera down and they were doing close filming of the wreck and they, they, they were saying up a bit, left a bit, down a bit, let's get over there, go round the stern, round the bows, and just standing behind them all watching that and hearing the gasps and the excitement and the shouts and the, almost the tears at times. That was a memory I'll never forget. My achievement, I can't really claim to have achieved that, but I think the achievement is, I'm very pleased I read War and Peace. I feel really good about myself. <laughs> I don't think I'd have read it unless I had a lot of time on my hands. The Wild Hog, what was your sense of time in the Antarctic? Good question. I mean, it was light most of the time. I didn't really have a sense of time. You're stuck in the ice, but you're moving, but you don't know you're moving. Space and time becomes very, very hard to calibrate. I'd end up going to bed very, very late and not sleeping much because it was light out my window. So it was weird. So the sense did come from artificial means, your phone, your clocks on the walls. You have to sort of regulate yourself with that. Odd Socks 99. How close were you guys to calling it a day before you found endurance? We had about four days left searching, and that was if the ice allowed us to. Things were getting colder. Bigger ice flows were moving. We got very, very lucky. There were a few times it looked like the ice was going to chase us out of the search box, and it never did. It always remained thin enough for us to ice break through. But we had about four or five days left, at best. Maybe eight, ten dives, maybe. So we were close to running out of time. Oxford Eco Garden. Did you ever get seasick? I didn't, actually. I was very lucky. I got seasick all the time when I was a kid, but as soon as I grew up, for some reason, it sort of went away. I was very lucky. So no seasickness. But some of the team, it was pretty bad. Alf Sinem Vidland. When did you start preparing the expedition? Well, they've been preparing for years, really, at least two years. The research work's been going for years before that, and obviously Saab have come up with the prototype for these vehicles. So it's a very, very long process. I'd say my involvement was about a year, and that involved kind of working out how we're going to broadcast it and get the satellite links and all that kind of stuff. So it's taken about a year. So I wanted to tell you all, but I couldn't. It was a big secret, so it's been exciting the last few months. What time zone did you stick with for the trip? We were at GMT. We were at Universal Time, Zulu Time. It didn't make much difference because it was sort of light and dark. It's sort of only dark for a few hours every night. But uh, yeah, we stuck with GMT in the Weddell Sea, even though it should be much closer to South American time. Hill Azzy, how did you know how to start in your search for insurance? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. You started with the coordinates given by the captain of insurance, Frank Worsley, who was a brilliant navigator. He made an estimation of where the ship sank on the 21st November 1915. But he didn't actually manage to take a reading from the sun that day. He worked out all his lats and longs using celestial navigation, stars and moon and sun. It was cloudy that day, so he didn't manage to do it. But he did it the next day. He took a sun reading the next day, and he tried to work out roughly how much he might have sort of moved since then. And he turned out to be pretty good and accurate. So we drew a search box basically around that point. Mensenbaum, the archaeologist, obviously made some tweaks given diary extracts and what we now know about the Weddell Sea gyre, the surface current. But we found it about four miles south of where Frank Worsley suggested. So well done him. Absolute triumph. Miss X says hi. After being out there in extreme conditions and seeing firsthand what Shackleton and Worsley managed to pull off in saving themselves and the crew, do you have a greater respect for their escape or do you think you would have survived? That's a great question. The answer is no. I don't think I would have survived. I don't think that you can display that grit and that determination and that 
knowledge and skill without quite a lot of experience and training and preparation. I was out on the ice for hours at a time and began to feel my life force draining away. You know, I, I really was unable to perform basic functions. I was beginning to struggle to use my hands. I was getting quite listless. Walking was exhausting. You know, that was after a couple of hours having had a good hot meal for lunch. So I think it's a lifetime of being hardened to the sea, of serving in those conditions on ships going around Cape Horn. I think it's multiple experiences of going to the ice. I think the other thing is they'd been on the ice, they'd been frozen in on the endurance for months and months and months. They'd hardened, they'd toughened themselves up, and then they toughened themselves up living on the ice. So I think they would have become acclimatised better than me. So I don't think I'd have survived. And the answer is having seen the Southern Ocean looking quite furious, having seen and experienced the cold and the damp and the misery of trying to navigate a small boat through the breaking up ice flows like they did on the way to Elephant Island. I don't really understand how they did it. I think it was astonishingly tenacious and brave and I think they must have enjoyed a bit of luck. Shackleton himself says that if they haven't reached Elephant Island, when they did, people started dying in those boats within the next 24 hours. They almost died several times over on the James Caird trip to South Georgia. It's an astonishing thing. And having been down here and walked the ground and been on boats on the waters, it just has increased my respect and admiration for what they achieved. And it's made me even more excited with the story. It'll be something that will always stay with me. Rosebots, what's the next big project you'd like to complete for history? Well, Rosebots, I'm glad you asked. We've got so much going on history. We've got some exciting early medieval archaeology, Anglo-Saxon kings and their burial sites, victims of Vikings. So that's going to be good. We've got a big um, World War I dig coming up this year. We're going to Egypt for about a Tutankhamun project. Things have never been more exciting in history. So you've got loads and loads and loads going on. So watch this space. Catherine Morgan, 1249. Will endure its stay in its currently beautiful preserved state for another 100 years or will climate change be its final frontier? It's a great question. I think it'll be preserved for a long time. I mean, unless the sea temperature heats up more rapidly in the projections, it's going to remain in a pretty good state for another 100 years. At some stage, things will start to really break down, but at the moment, it's looking magnificent, and it's likely to stay like that for the foreseeable. Abigail Ierson, regarding the rule preventing anything being abused, when does come into play? Are we aware of any shipwrecks in the Antarctic that we are unable to access because of it? What do you think we miss from merely looking at 3D imaging? Are there any situations where exceptions are made to the rule? Well, Abigail, that's not a question. So here we go. So... We're not allowed to remove anything. It's protected under the Antarctic Treaty, which has been in since the 60s, I think. It governs everything that goes on. The British government have also designated it a historic wreck. So it's covered in designations and protections. No one is going to touch that wreck. You're not allowed. There are other wrecks. Yes, there are definitely other wrecks in the Antarctic. There was a, a wreck of a fake ship, in fact, called the Antarctic. And there's a more modern tour ship that's gone down more recently as well. So other wrecks. And... Funnily enough, I don't think you do miss anything from looking at 3D imaging and video, because, of course, bear in mind, that's all we've done as well. It was 3,000 metres below us, so we haven't dived on it or been the submersible or looked at it. We've had a very similar experience to you. We've just looked at the data that we've retrieved from the seabed. So I think we're on pretty level playing field there. Merton Primary School. Did you and the scientists have a party when we found endurance? Did you see any pollution Antarctica, and what was the best wildlife we saw? Well, great question, folks. We had a big party after we found endurance. We were on the way back, and we all had a big barbecue on the heli deck, 
and we listened to great South African music and we all danced with the South African crew and with each other and we and whales kept spouting out next to us so as the ship was moving through the water and we were all dancing on the heli deck listening to music all these whales kept coming to have a look at us and checking us out maybe they heard the music so that was great we see these big tails waving in the air and then great plumes of water being spouted up we didn't see any pollution in the Antarctic that's the good news I didn't see any pollution at all but um, obviously the most dangerous pollution is the the acidification of our oceans, which we can't see, and then the so-called greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we can't see either. But no, I didn't see any plastic pollution or rubbish anywhere, which was great. The best wildlife I saw, I think, was a big whale, a big minky whale, but also saw a leopard seal. They're so strong, leopard seals. They're great. I love seeing that. Thanks, everybody, for all those amazing questions. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about endurance again. You're going to hear after the break from John and Viv James, whose dad was on the expedition. Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, we find those answers for you. Talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr. Kat Jarman, and my co-host, Matt Lewis, for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Gentlemen, wonderful to talk to you from um, from the Weddell Sea. This feels very special. Well, it must be different. It's about 27 degrees here at the moment and you're below freezing. We are about minus five. Right now, tell us about your dad. 
Our father was just finishing his degree at Cambridge University when somebody asked him if he would like to go to the South Pole. And he said, well, not really. But somehow his name was put forward. He got an interview with the Master of Christ's College. And the next thing he was forwarded to Shackleton. And he had an interview with Shackleton in London. And after a five-minute interview, Shackleton asked him whether he could sing, whether he would mind losing his toes or or whether he had varicose veins, he was appointed as physicist for the expedition. And he then had four months to get find out what was needed to be a physicist in the Antarctic, get the gear together and get it packed. He wasn't able to go on the endurance, so he left with Frank Wilde and Jock Wordy a bit later on on a ship called La Negra, working his passage as a dog handler to Buenos Aires. Can I ask, gents, why do you think your father was chosen? What special aptitude had he shown, do you think, that made him the focus of attention at Cambridge? Well, they couldn't get anybody else. They were pretty desperate. But he was vaguely interested because he had helped the people from Scott's expedition, the physicists from Scott's expedition, write up their results when they came back. So he did have a little bit of experience. Shackleton had an amazing way of interviewing people. He did it very quickly and he used his gut feel, I think, completely. I think he liked the old man and said, you're on. It was probably simple as that. Was your old man very intrepid before all this? No, he just finished a five-year degree at Cambridge and was wondering what to do next. I mean, the war was imminent. It hadn't started at that stage. But his great friend at Cambridge... Jock Wordy, was going as geologist. So that probably had a bit of an influence. What I remember, he had only been as far as the New Forest by that time. I think that was the limit of his adventures. He'd studied in German university as part of his degree. He had been that far, but never overseas. Let's get the kind of ages and timings all sorted. When were you guys born? and How old was your father when you were born? 47 when I was born. And 49 for me. I'm about to become 84. And he lived to a good old age? No, he was 73 when he died. He started late. We were what we call late lambs. He married late, and uh, that's why we're still alive, as it were. And did he talk to you guys about it? As children, we were given an edited version. He did several lectures and slideshows for us as kids and at our school, and but... There was a lot that we weren't told. We've only found out afterwards. In the 60s, we weren't really interested in it. You know, I would have welcomed the opportunity now to discuss it with him in detail, but we never had that opportunity. But having said that, talking to Jock Wordy's son, the members of the expedition, they definitely had a pact or an agreement that they wouldn't tell tales out of school or talk too much about how bad things had been. Maybe you guys weren't that interested, but did he tell your mother or friends? Did he tell stories about the expedition? No. He gave a lot of lectures. He talked a lot about it, but we know nothing about the personal side of it, the hardships. We know the general story very well, but 
not the gory details, if you know what I mean. No, he never mentioned anything like that. The nearest he came to it was he had to a dinner when he was acting vice-chancellor of the university or at some stage, and he had a very, very larny dinner, and he was sitting next to this lady who mentioned that the food tasted like dog. I think my father remarked something like, no, it's worse than dog. That's about the only thing I've ever heard about things being said. You mentioned there, John, the general story was known. People will be familiar now with the Shackleton story because of all the work we've done on this podcast, but chart your father's role within it. He was obviously a physicist. What would he have been doing on the way south into the ice? Did he have special duties or roles? The duty of the physicist normally on these things would be to do magnetic observations, the sort of thing you can't do when the, the ship is moving. While they were on South Georgia, they put in a, a meridian line for the whalers to check their compasses a surveying job, he then got interested in the navigation and with the books in the ship's library, he taught himself the basics of navigation. He was a very, very keen amateur astronomer, but of course he knew nothing about the stars in the southern hemisphere. But once the ship was stuck in the ice and the method of observation, position-taking, became a theodolite and not a sextant, then he got far more involved because he was far more competent with using an instrument like a theodolite than Captain Worsley would have been because you can't use a theodolite on a moving ship. So he got more and more involved with position-finding. They had no means of time-checking because their radio that they took with them didn't work. They tried putting up strange aerials, but they could receive no time signals. So they had to then find a method of checking the chronometers because a couple of seconds out, that latitude can mean several miles out. So he found among the ship's stores an old ship's telescope, which he cleaned up and dusted off and they mounted this on one of Hurley's camera tripods, and they were then able to observe the occultation of stars. And an occultation of a star is when a star is eclipsed by the moon, when the moon goes in front of the star, and then from the nautical almanac, and measuring the time when the star disappeared by a fairly complex mathematical process, you are then able to come back to calculate the time and correct your chronometers, thereby getting an accurate position. Of course, what they were interested in was an accurate position of the ship, not accurate time, so that ultimately when they were able to take to the boats, they would know exactly where they were so that they were able to aim for Paulette Island or whatever. I mean, at no stage were they plotting the endurance to come back and look for it later. Well, it's fascinating to think that I'm roughly where your father's calculations working together with Worsley, they sort of worked out exactly where endurance had sank. And I'm within metres or a mile or two of that position right now. So I'm here because of your dad. No, we're very proud that he was involved. That's why we got hold of you, Dan, because we were really getting seriously interested in what you're doing down there. So your dad didn't tell you 
what it was like surviving in the open boats on the way to Elephant Island or surviving for those brutal months on Elephant itself. What sense do you have of what he went through? Well, we have his diary and we have a number of papers that he gave to various societies. So we have a, a very good idea of what it was like in the open boats. There is also a very good section in his diary of life in the hut on Elephant Island, but not the cruder details that I found out later that at night when they wanted to wee, they used to pee into a petrol can and somebody's duty eventually was to take that petrol can outside. So people tried to hang on as long as they could so that they didn't have the duty of taking the petrol can outside. That is something I only learnt many years later from Jock Wordy's son. I'd never heard it from my father. From reading what he'd written, I think that what's hugely underestimated is the heroic journey from the ice to Elephant Island with those three boats. If you read about the lack of food, the lack of water, and he wrote quite a lot about that. To me, that's one of the most incredible parts of the expedition, and it's very underplayed. I think the other thing that's underplayed about the expedition is Frank Wilde and what he did on Elephant Island. Those are the things that I think really need to be recognised, and that I got from what my dad wrote. I couldn't agree more. It's an extraordinary part of the survival story. What about when he came back? Have you heard from relatives or friends? Did the expedition change him? Oh, I think undoubtedly it did. But one thing, both his parents were dead before he went on the expedition. He only had one brother and an uncle. There were no other major relatives. I think if he'd had, if his parents had been alive, I don't think he would have gone. When he came back from the expedition... He was grabbed by Sir Lawrence Bragg to join Sir Lawrence Bragg's sound ranging unit on the Western Front where they developed this method of positioning enemy guns by timing the report over a number of microphones and they could then pinpoint the guns. And he was straight away into that sort of weeks after he got back to England. Do you think he ever regretted going? Was he excited by what he'd been part of? Every now and again in his diary, he, he mentions it would really be nice to get back to doing some proper physics again. I think he was really philosophical about everything. And he knew more than anybody else, other than probably Shackleton and Wilde, what was going on because of the navigation. And I don't think anybody other than those few realised how seriously important it was to come out of the ice far to the west and not to the east. And that was their big worry, was this drift. He mentions it all the time in his diary. They weren't expecting as much drift to the West. It was much better than they thought it would be. So he was worried about that type of thing all the time, I think. He was a very philosophical guy, I mean, and super intelligent, of course. One thing that came out of his diary, too, was that he said that the educated men on Edifert Island were able to cope far better than the lower deck, who hadn't got the education to think and be introspective. But arising out of this, when I finished at the university and got my degree in engineering, he said to me, now you're going to go to England and you're going to do an engineering apprenticeship and you're going to learn how the lower deck live. So that's obviously part of the expedition. Your father can't have imagined that endurance would ever be seen again 3,000 metres down the bottom of the Weddell Sea. What's it mean to you that the world might cast its eyes on the wreck of endurance? 
I was very lucky in 2008. I bumped into uh, Captain Tarrant, who was the skipper of the Endurance, HMS Endurance. And I was going through a very bad time for various reasons. And he said to me, you look like hell. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look at you. I was busy losing my first wife. And then he went wandering off on the ship. And then he came back and he said, don't you need a sea cruise? I think that will really help you. I said, what do you mean? He says, why don't you come south with us? So I hitched a ride with the Royal Navy and they landed me on Elephant Island and stood me exactly where the upturned boats were. And the pictures of my face, it was incredibly emotional. And I think if what you guys do, if you find that ship, I'll have the same feelings. That's why I was so keen to get hold of you. And I know you're going to leave it there and that's fine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of people are saying to me, why go to all the trouble? What do you think it means to you, John, to identify where that wreck is and to clap eyes on it? I think it's a wonderful idea as long as you leave it there. It must stay there. It must sleep there. We don't want anybody hauling artefacts off it and trying to make money. That I would be very, very, very upset. But having said that, going to Elephant Island and landing there was one of the most emotional experiences of my life, that my wife and I were able to land land on Elephant Island and stand where their hut was. What do you think it meant in your father's life and career? What was the impact of it or everything he'd been through? Initially, probably the fact that he'd been to the Antarctic and then to the war, it had probably slowed his career down because his Cambridge year, there were many brilliant physicists and most of the chairs in physics in England were taken. This is basically why he came to South Africa, because he was offered the chair of physics at Cape Town University when he didn't seem that there was going to be a professorship at any major university in England. So he came to Cape Town. He picked that physics department up by the bootstrings and led it to a leading institution, produced two Nobel Prize winners, which I think is pretty good going. He then went on to become acting principal and vice-chancellor of the university for several years. So I think he had quite a career and his experiences on the expedition, he was tough and being the vice-chancellor of the university at that time with the changes coming it was a tough, stressful job, and I think he was able to cope with it very well. Was he a good dad as well? Yes. Well, you know, you talk about the navigation. We had a, an old friend of his gave the family a theodolite, of all things, exactly like the one that you see in the picture at the stern of the ship, which we still have. So we spent, I don't know how long, in the back garden, and we fixed accurately the position of our house in Rondebosch, which is a suburb of Cape Town. John, you probably remember that. Yes, I had to do a paper on navigation for school. So this was all done. We plotted the thing. We did all the calculations. He also built his own telescope, which I still have. He scrounged lenses from the dockyard at Simonstown and he built a telescope and he used to observe occultations in our back garden and then check back with his nautical almanac and try to do the calculations. He never lost that. He kept his skills up just in case he was ever called back to duty. He was a hard act to follow, that's for sure. And with his contacts, we met all sorts of Antarctic people as they came through Cape Town. We entertained Sir Vivian Fuchs at our home and 
we had one of the big American explorers there who were going down also with Vesuvian Fuchs. They wanted to take him back to the Antarctic and his doctor said, no ways, you can't do that at your age. Are you the last two people, do you think, who are children of Shackleton's veterans? No, the surgeon, McElroy, he got married even later than my father and I believe there are, I don't know if they're still alive, but there are two McElroy sons that are younger than us. There's not many about. What was your father's view on Shackleton? Well, he said he was one of the greatest leaders known to man and that Shackleton, people would follow Shackleton to the end of the earth. In the Hugh Robert Mill biography of Shackleton, there is a quote by my father there of what people thought about Shackleton, but definitely he admired Shackleton all the way. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Bye, Don. Thank you. sun is out now. It's late afternoon. I'm about three days before arriving in Cape Town. There's a steady 30-knot breeze hitting us on our port beams. We're rocking from side to side, big rollers coming in. The white caps standing out so vividly in this sunshine against the deep blue of the sea. Got a few white caps. The wind is pretty stiff, but I'm used to it now. What might have appeared unusual a month ago, even concerning now just feels very much part of the daily routine. A cabin, my world, rocking from side to side. The books on my shelf carefully wedged in, nothing moving. For many people on the ship, we're enjoying the last days of the trip. We're also thinking about the future. Lots of chat and plans with Mince and Bound about what future shipwrecks History Hit might be able to come out and find with them, so that's exciting. The scientists are all finishing up their reports and thinking about future projects. And there'll be no rest for the ship's crew themselves. As soon as they're going to Cape Town, they're turning it around, doing all sorts of essential maintenance, and they'll be back out on the Southern Ocean very, very soon. The next big excitement for me seems to be this history hit trip to Egypt to mark the 100th anniversary of Tutankhamun's tomb being discovered. So watch this space, folks. It's going to be a good one. As I'm sitting here heading home, I'm thinking about the veterans, the people that survived, the endurance, the crew of endurance, they all famously survived, all 28 of them, apart from Mrs. Chippy, the cat, but all 28 humans survived. Two, though, would be killed in the First World War. Most of them signed up as soon as they got back. Borrell McCarthy, who was a veteran of the James Caird small boat trip, and Cheatham, they were both torpedoed. And in fact, Cheatham had a particularly rough time because he learned as he got back from the Antarctic that his 16-year-old son had already been killed in the First World War. So multiple tragedies for the Cheatham family. Other people were badly injured in the war, people like Green. Actually, he discovered his girlfriend and married someone else while he'd been away, presuming him dead. Vincent was torpedoed and many others were badly wounded. And let's not forget the Ross Sea heroes. I've mentioned them once or twice during this, but these are the people who history has conveniently forgotten. They are the people sent to the other side of Antarctica to lay the supplies which Shackleton thought he was going to use as he made his way from the South Pole to the other coast of Antarctica. They didn't know that Shackleton wasn't coming. They had no communication at all. So they worked tirelessly. They dragged loads of supplies over hundreds and hundreds of miles back and forward sledging. Terrible. Of the 10 people put ashore... Three of them died while they were over there. And Ernest Wilde, who was actually Frank Wilde's brother, Shackleton's kind of enforcer, his number two, Ernest Wilde died 
in the First World War when he signed up, when he got back. So that was a terribly ill-fated, ill-starred group of people. Chuck himself, he promised his wife this would be his last expedition, but of course he was lying. He only knew one life, really. I think that was out there, trying to organise and trying to execute expeditions to Antarctica. He wasn't very good at it. He went on four expeditions, and, and he never really achieved what he'd set out to do in any of those expeditions. But I think we today realise that greatness is about how you respond when things go wrong. Heroism comes out not when you're in the flush of success, but when everything has fallen apart. That's what makes Shackleton a hero, a relatable hero. He's a man who stared ruin in the face and always stepped up. He died of a huge heart attack in January 1922. He was lowered into his grave on the 5th of March 1922 and bizarrely, bizarrely, I'm not making this up, 100 years later to the day we discovered Shackleton's shipwreck on the bottom of the Weddell Sea. Spooky. In a small way, like Shackleton's crew, we're returning to a world that's much changed. Thankfully, not as radically as it had during the First World War, and hopefully that will remain the case. I need to thank some people, of course. Captain Knowledge Bengu and his crew, without them, we would not have been anywhere, literally. We'd have been stuck on the quayside in Cape Town. So thank you to them, unbelievably professional challenging stereotypes in every way imaginable. A proud multicultural South African crew demonstrating world-class Antarctic skills. A privilege to watch all that happen. Donald Lamont and the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust, thank you for ringing me that day over a year ago now, standing on a platform in the New Forest and getting a phone call from someone saying they were mounting an expedition to the Antarctic. Did I want to go? The answer was quite simply yes. Thank you for trusting us, me and History Hit. Thank you as well to the whole podcast team, Marianne de Forge, who you've heard on the podcast. She's the producer. Ably assisted by Hannah Warden Emily, edited by the legendary Dougal Patmore. Everyone at History Hit, Steve Lanham, James Carson, the whole works. Everyone has been brilliant. We've released pods, posts, articles, TV shows, online video that's gone out to tens, if not hundreds of millions of people across the world and beyond my wildest expectations. So thank you very much, everybody. The History Hit team on board, which is James, Nat, Saunders, Paul and Nick, have been amazing. We have managed to do well over a month on a ship together, not fallen out. I think our friendship and our professional comradeship has deepened and I can't wait to work with you all again. I know I always say this, but it's true, folks. My last and biggest thank you is to people who listen to this podcast and subscribe to History Hit TV. Without all of you, None of this would have happened at all. I came to you all with a mad dream. I asked you to listen to my podcast and you said yes. I asked you to subscribe to my history channel and enough of you said yes. You put up with me as I learned how to transition from a kind of useless TV presenter, TV host, to somebody running a small or medium-sized business now. <laughs> it wasn't an easy process. It was a brutal process. But you put up with it and you supported me all the way through that. And I will never be able to thank you enough. It's been the greatest privilege of my professional life. And I owe it all to you. I'm sure it wasn't easy for all of you at times as well. So thank you. Shackleton's motto, after all, is through endurance we conquer. And I think together we all endured. And here we are, having good times. Thank you for listening to this podcast. See you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.